1: Today is 517-2013 and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Friday when we take your calls to 866-65Think. You pick up your phone, you mash those numbers. 866-65Think. I say mash those numbers, but uh, we don't really mash a lot of numbers anywhere. Most people use a cell phone and it's a touchpad, you know. You don't mash anything. On that note though, if you are using a cell phone, please look at your, your signal strength and have a couple bars before you do that and, don't call me on the back of your tractor or driving down the road with your window open. And uh, I got a special message to one listener today. Lock your phone, dude. Um, somebody pocket-dialed the Think line like four times in a row. And uh, I was able to hear your entire conversation because I'm a really nice guy and not a nosy person. I didn't listen to it. But, yeah, there was one number like again, again, again. And I figured it was just somebody that kept messing up their call. And when I listened, I realized it was somebody driving down the road, having a personal conversation uh, who had pocket dialed, I'm assuming the think line. So that's just a little thing to be aware of there. Anyway, if you call in, what I'd like you to do is make your point or ask your question immediately. Like don't Give me any details. Just make your point or ask your question. Then give me all the details that you can fit into about two and a half minutes. This is about how much time you'll have left after you do that. If you do that, your call will go so much better. And your odds of getting on the air will go up so much than if you call and go, I'm in eastern Massachusetts, and I'm not really talking about anybody in particular here. I'm making these things up as I go. I'm in eastern Massachusetts, and the sun rises on the east side of my property, sets on the west side of my property. And I'm looking at growing food and my particular situation is where I'm, and you know, I'm going, dude, there's no question here. Delete. I'm sorry. Uh, as much work as I have to do every day, I can't listen to that question. That question should begin with, I'm looking at growing berries and nuts in the eastern Massachusetts area. My property's like, you know, whatever. I'm just trying to help you guys. Anyway. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. I can't tell you how, how great it is for me to be working with Backwoods Home right now. I mean, it's just awesome. Um, and the reason is I'm a reader since 1993. When I got out of the Army... You know, and I ended up in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, actually Louisville, Texas, was the first place I ended up after I uh, took my little walk on the Appalachian Trail through three states and decompressed and became a human being again. Um, and I came down here to see a friend, and I realized I was going to stay here, and I was surrounded by city. And I'm like, this really isn't what a country boy from the Appalachian Mountains of Pennsylvania would really wants." but it's where my career is going to be for now. And I just had this dream one day of living kind of the homestead lifestyle. And I used to walk to Barnes and Noble's that was only about a half a mile away to stay in shape and to, you know, save money because I was broke. And I'd sit up there and I'd read books and buy a coffee. You know, that was my view that by buying a coffee I could sit there all day and read books if I wanted to. And nobody should be upset about it. I was exchanging value for the time. Uh, and buying a two and a half, three dollar cup of coffee made that seem okay to me, especially in the broke state I was in. But the one thing that I always read was Backwoods Home Magazine whenever a new copy was on the shelf. And, uh, then, you know, I kind of got some level of moderate success in my life. Had a job anyway with a steady paycheck. One of the first things I did was become a subscriber, and I've been a subscriber and reader ever since. And now I get to work with people like Jackie Clay and Dave Duffy and, and, and John Silvera and Masada Yub, and it's just awesome. And I love having them as a sponsor. I think you should be a reader and a subscriber, too, because they're one of the best publications I've ever found for self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and done from a libertarian view instead of a hippie-yippie view. Check them out today, Backwoods Home Magazine, uh, online at backwoodshome.com, and you can get a special discount if you subscribe through the MSB. Next up today is knifekits.com. Um, I think owning different knives, cool knives, unique knives is awesome. In fact, I have something really cool coming for you guys about that very, very soon, where you can help a small business person get up off the ground and become full-time as a knife maker. And it's going to be one of the most awesome things you've ever seen. But not everybody can pony up you know, three figures and mid-three figures for a knife. And some of us still want something unique and different, or we just want to learn the skill. If you get over to KnifeKits.com for a very small investment, you can get a kit. A handle material, you can get a book or a DVD that tells you what to do, and you can build something unique and your own in just about any pattern, shape, or size that you want and do the final forms, fit, and finishing. But if you are that awesome custom knife maker, what a great supplier. Bolsters, pins, handle material from exotic to just really cool stuff. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. And again, another sponsor that gives every member of the Support Brigade a discount. Check your members area and your benefits part of the MSB for anything you buy from any of our sponsors before you join. Occasionally, I'll get an email from somebody saying, so-and-so is not in the MSB. Do they give a discount? The answer is no. If they're not in the MSB, they don't give a discount. All the discounts are in the benefits area of the MSB. Good segue there. Check out the Member Support Brigade. Go to the Survival Podcast. Click on Members. If you sign up, you'll support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. You'll get discounts from over 40 providers of the things you're probably buying every year anyway. It'll pay for your membership back many times over. And you'll get a ton of awesome content on top of it. With that, I am ready to get into the main topic of today's show. And since it is Friday, 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 that is your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And with that, let's take your first call now.
2: Hi, Jack. My name is Brian. I'm from Indiana. I was wondering about water storage. I have access to a lot of used five-gallon buckets that used to have paint in them. And I was looking for a good way to store water, a, a cheap way to store my water. We live in the country and we're on well water. And I was wondering if I could store water, just regular well water, in one of those buckets. And then if I needed it in the future, if I could run that through my Berkey water filter and if that would be safe enough to drink. If you could answer that, that'd be that'd be great. Thanks, Jack.
1: Um, I'm going to say... This is a perfect example of when you get into the situation of just because you could do something doesn't mean you should do something. I think especially if these are water-based, not an oil-based paint, if you have that thing completely cleaned out and you put water in there uh, and, and run it through a Berkey later, I don't think that you would uh have any risk of death or dying or being sick or anything like that, but... I still wouldn't do it. I actually think the five-gallon bucket as a whole, even if you had a food-grade five-gallon bucket, is a terrible water storage device. It it, it doesn't make sense as a water storage device. It's it's big enough to be heavy but small enough to not be in a a really great quantity. It has a lot of purposes. There's a, I think uh, uh, Greg Yose, who wrote the uh, theme song for the show you hear every day, wrote a song about the five-gallon bucket and how there's almost nothing a five-gallon bucket can't do. And I'm not saying it can't hold water, but, boy, that's not really – and pouring water out of a five-gallon bucket. And then you're going to add the fact that this thing held paint. If it held an oil-based paint, I wouldn't even do it. Um, The buckets used for that are not a food-grade bucket, and they never were meant to be a food-grade bucket. So they have the ability or, let's say, a weakness in that they can take things into the plastic that gets released slowly over time. Uh, Again, through the Berkey, I would drink water out of a creek through a Berkey. I would drink it out of a mud puddle probably through a Berkey. So it's not that if it was the only choice I had, I wouldn't do it. It's just planning ahead, I probably wouldn't. Cheap, low-cost way to store water. I'm going to give you the best water storage device known to man that's cheap and small and lightweight enough that it's portable. It can be bartered with. You can move it around. It won't break. It's tough as nails. The 2-liter soda bottle. And if you don't drink two-liter soda bottles, I bet you know somebody who does, who doesn't give a damn about them, and will give them to you for free. The other item, and the one we're using right now, is the the big, I think they're uh half-gallon, actually, and they're not full-gallon, or maybe they another gallon, Uh that come from Arizona iced tea. My father-in-law is addicted to diet Arizona iced tea, and I don't think anybody should be drinking diet tea with the freaking saccharin crap shit in it. I think it's bad for you, but... He's 84, he's going to do what he wants, whatever. And that's how you're going to have to look at this. A lot of the stuff that comes in these bottles, you probably don't want, but some somebody else is doing it, so might, might as well get the bottle. And those are real heavy plastic. We clean them out, and they have a nice handle on them, and they don't roll around the way a 2-liter soda bottle does. So I've actually become uh, to a point where I actually like them better. They store better because they, they're flat on the sides. You can store a ton of them in a small space. And, uh, you know, you throw a board on top of them, you can stack them. Those that are about to come to the workshop we're doing next week, um, you'll see that's what we're storing almost all our, our, you know, our readily accessible small amounts of water in. So I would go with one of those two approaches. I don't care how many five-gallon buckets you have available to you that have held paint. I would not put food or drink in that bucket. I think there's probably a lot of things you can do with those but I wouldn't use it for food or drink. I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying you'll die. I'm not saying it'll kill you. I'm just saying it's far from ideal, and there's better low-cost, no-cost solutions out there. Um, I would advise you, though, to think seriously, if you're in a rural area on a well, about that being a first step and going beyond that. We just had a 1,500-gallon black water tank that's designed to be food-grade available uh, from Tractor Supply for 800 bucks delivered to the front of our house. And you think, man, that's a big tank. It's a big tank, but empty, I flipped it over by myself and rolled it back to where I wanted it, no problem. It could have been twice, it could have been a twenty five hundred gallon tank. The only reason I didn't get the twenty five hundred gallon tank is it's much taller and I wanted it to be a little bit inconspicuous and I figure I'll add another fifteen hundred gallon tank down the road. Uh setting up rain catch with first flush diversion and a large tank like that may be a great idea. If you have a place where you can gravity feed Setting it up so your well pumps into that tank and then the tank pumps back to your house or a, a bank of tanks like that would allow your well to keep those tanks always capped off. Then you're drinking the same water you are anyway and the only difference is you have this pressure tank feed reserve. That might be something to look at and consider if your landscape profile allows for it. Mine doesn't really. I can't get a lot of pressure here without building basically a tower. And that's exactly what we're going to do, by the way. We're going to take and build us a great big tower built out of really strong 4 by 4s dig down the, the foot we have to to hit that slab of, uh, of uh, what do you call it, a limestone down there, and that will never move. And we'll throw like a, a three hundred gallon tank up on that platform you have to th- if you do this, you have to think about what size tank you put up there and what you what you build. I want to just give you some rough numbers here a A three hundred gallon tank at water being about eight point three pounds per gallon will be twenty four hundred and ninety pounds let's call that twenty five hundred pounds that's one and a quarter tons. Now, that 300 gallon tank, you could pick that thing up when it's empty. And, and, you know, if you had a rope around it or something, you could probably throw it over your shoulder and carry it. And it'll give you the illusion that, that really it's not that big a deal. But that's a lot. We thought about doing the pressure with a 550 gallon tank, and we just weren't comfortable with, uh, how much we'd really have to consider the weight. But at that point, you're going up to about 4,500 pounds, a little bit more. That's, that's a lot of weight to hold with a wooden platform. Uh, so we're gonna probably use a 300 gallon tank. We're gonna put it up a little bit uh, around roof level. The 1500 gallon tank then can be overflowed into a couple stock tank ponds, six foot round stock tank ponds that will be more for irrigation and fertilization because they build nutrient up in the little showcase garden we're doing. And we'll also be able to, with a low draw pump, pump water from the 1,500-gallon tank, and eventually it'll be tanks, it will be 3,000 gallons sitting there, up into the 300-gallon tank on the water tower, which will give us pressure, which would give us 300 gallons at any 24-hour cycle with a pump that's so miserly with its use of electricity, that even though it'll probably run off grid power because it's sitting right there, we could then run it off backup power very easily with just a couple solar panels and a battery. And that way we have this triple redundancy built into the system. And I know you said low cost, so that might be going overkill right now, but that would kind of be the progression forward. But the low cost way to store, you know, 40, 50, 100 gallons of water in your house Just store soda bottles or or the iced tea jugs or whatever. Good quality food-grade plastic. People throw it away every day. Clean it out really good. Rinse it out. If you're anal, put a couple drops of bleach in it. Give it a good shake with some hot water and bleach. Turn it upside down and let it sit for a day like that till it off-gasses all the chlorine. And then just put your water in it and you're good to go. And that is so much better. So much better than a five gallon bucket in every way imaginable. You got food grade. It's still free. It's smaller. It's more portable. It's easier to carry. It's easier to grab five of those, you know, five one gallon jugs and, and move them somewhere that you need to move them to than it is to take one five gallon bucket sloshing around, try to get the lid off in the dark. Do- I mean, just. It's just so superior. That is the way, and until somebody shows me a better way, it is the way I'm going to teach people to store water on that type of a level. Let's take another call.
3: Hey, Jack. Thanks for everything you do for the entire community, and thanks to Dorothy, the lady behind the man. Um got an expert counsel question for Chef Keith. I've called and asked this before, but it was during your move, and I didn't hear a reply. I may have missed it, but most likely it got lost in the shuffle. Anyhow, Chef Keith, my wife and I are fairly budget conscious. We store what we eat. We eat what we store. And um, additionally, we have a good amount of produce coming in from our gardens. And all of this tempered with busy professional lives. So frequently we'll cook on a weekend, a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Uh, and try and prep meals for the entire week, uh, saving us time and energy and money. Um, that all makes sense. And we're fairly decent home cooks, as it were. But one of the things we've been thinking about and which we could use some advice on is sauces. Uh, taking your average vegetable and meat stir-fry with a little bit of rice and changing it. And we know that stir-fry rice can taste like 15 different things from 15 various places in Asia. Um, we have a basic bolognese sauce, um, but we know that French cooking is all about saucing and that you can go to culinary school and do sauces. So, do you have any advice for us on how to spice up our cooking, uh, reasonably easily, cheaply, commonly available ingredients that would just add a new dimension to all of our healthy eating or reasonably healthy eating, as the case may be? Thanks, Chef Keith, and
1: thanks, Jack. Bye-bye. Well, what we have there is a question for expert panel member Keith Snow. Hey, Keith, are you out there? You got an answer for our friend here?
4: Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer the question about making your food taste a little better. Now, that's something that uh, I think all of us strive for is better tasting food. And there's certainly little chefy tricks to make things taste better. Um, You mentioned cooking over the weekend and uh, having things ready during the week because of a you know, a busy sort of uh, two-income type family, and that's no different than what my wife and I do. She likes to have things ready, too. Um, some folks just aren't uh, all that great about whipping things up uh, on the spot. Now, um, you also mentioned sauces and trying to make, you know, preps, things like rice and beans and uh, other th- other foods taste a little more exciting. Well, the five mother sauces in classic French cooking, bechamel, Espanola, which is a brown sauce, veloute, hollandaise, and tomato are um, good things to know. Now, some of those, like a hollandaise sauce, isn't really going to have much benefit in a cook-ahead situation just because it's a very fragile sauce. Um, But some of the others can have uh, great use for you to to make things taste a little better. And here's a super simple um, recommendation. Bechamel sauce. It's a simple white sauce, one of the most basic sauces uh, out there. And now there's a technical way to do it where if you were in a French kitchen, if you didn't do it this way, the French chef would, you know, pull a Gordon Ramsay on you. And the way they do it is by making a roux, and that's equal parts of butter and flour, um, fat and flour. Some Some folks use oil, but the French would use butter and flour. And this is a very light-colored roux. You don't want to make a peanut butter roux or a brick roux. This is not New Orleans food. So it goes from uh, when you start making a roux, it's like blonde in color. Now, you want to cook the flour taste out, but you don't want to take it much beyond that. So you have to be on a pretty low heat, and you've got to be whisking constantly. Once the butter's melted, the flour goes in, you start to whisk, and you'll smell that it'll kind of the cakiness will cook out of it. Once that happens what's done is an onion a white onion is studded with a bay leaf and you know, they take a bay leaf and just place it on the cut side of an onion or even on the outside of an onion they take cloves which are very sharp when they're whole and they're used as little uh i don't know spears and they, they pierce the bay leaf and it sticks to the onion so you've got your bay leaf studded onion and then what you do is add hot milk and you would um and the reason it's hot is it keeps it from clumping you would whisk in milk that's been heated, whole milk, and then you drop that onion in there, and you let the sauce kind of come up to temperature. And the uh, bay leaf, the onion, the cloves, they give a certain flavor to that bechamel. Now, that's something, you know, coming from the south, the the white sausage gravy, you know, it's somewhat of a bechamel. Um, Of course, the French would freak out to... um, you know, with the comparison of a, of a white sausage gravy being a bechamel. But, you know, you're thickening up milk with, uh, you know, with a roux mixture. But once you have this bechamel down, this can be made ahead. Um, then you've got a sauce that can be made into a compound sauce. Now, all these five mother sauces, there's many, many, many variations called compound sauces that derive from the original mother sauce. Now again, some of this is not going to be applicable to, you know, cooking, um, sort of preppish type foods ahead of time, but some of it will. So sticking with this bechamel theme, if you have a bechamel, you can do interesting things like make a lasagna, um, which is super simple. You can cook the pasta noodles ahead of time, the sheets ahead of time. And then you just layer, you know, a simple tomato sauce. Intermittently with you know cheese and some of this bechamel, it makes a very rich and delicious lasagna um, I've got a recipe in my cookbook it's called the harvest eating lasagna and it's uh, there's no red sauce at all and it uses a lot of garden vegetables like leeks and sweet potatoes and a bechamel sauce with a little bit of cheese, really really delicious and something that a lot of people are not used to. But also that bechamel can be made into a mornay, a compound sauce, by adding cheese. So over the weekend, you make the bechamel, and then you uh, heat it up on the stove, add your shredded sharp cheddar cheese. Now you've got a base to take pre-cooked noodles and make a terrific mac and cheese. You also can, uh, you mentioned being a gardener, you have a lot of vegetables. There is no better way to jazz up what would be you know, somewhat... Boring vegetables. Then, with a little um, mornay sauce and a few breadcrumbs, you pop it under the broiler. So, let's just say you had Brussels sprouts. You could take those Brussels sprouts, um, take the ends off, cut them in half. If if they're really big, steam them for five or six minutes. Put them in a baking dish, layer, and don't you don't want to drown them in bechamel, but a little bit of bechamel kind of dripped over the top, or mornay sauce in this case, with the cheese in there. And then a little sprinkling of panko breadcrumbs or if you save some of your own bread and you let it go stale and then you grind it up in a food processor, sprinkle that over the top, maybe a little bit of chopped parsley and we're going to talk about herbs in a second. You pop that under the broiler for a minute and all of a sudden you've got something really interesting and this can be done with carrots, it can be done with broccoli all different cauliflower, lots of your sort of cruciferous vegetables are great with uh, a little gratiné on top. So there's your bechamel sauce doing a few different things for you. Um, now, also, in order to make foods taste better, and when you're cooking with preps, things like rice and beans and pasta, which, by the way, makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, a lot of people that are getting into prepping, they hear sort of the scare tactic uh, food companies, you know, buy a pallet of our food before the electricity goes out. And, you know, sure, people do that. And then if the electricity did go out, you'd be, um, reconstituting some of the worst slop ever and trying to eat it. Um, but if you spend some of that money and go out and buy rice, beans and pasta and properly store them, now you've got a lot of options culinarily to finish them. Now I'm not saying, uh, it's going to be easy to boil water if the electricity goes out, but uh, assuming the world stays together enough to cook, it does, in my opinion, it makes more sense to buy some of these things, you know, at a club store or even at a supermarket or a wholesale buying club than from, you know, some of the bigs. Anyway, if you, for instance, take, um, I don't know, black beans, you take black beans, they're a lot of people have those in storage. You cook a big pot of brothy black beans. You know, you put a bay leaf in there, some onion. Let them cook up. You really don't want to season them though, because you're going to season them later. Now you have something that can be made into delicious meals during the week. And you can use things like herbs and citrus juice, um, other little infusions which is like olive oil infused with garlic and different herbs. I use a lot of infusions in my cooking. But if you've got a pot of black beans that you've cooked over the weekend, now during the week, let's just, I mean, quickly, you could wake up more, one morning and have uh, huervos rancheros, eggs, right? Eggs sort of ranch style with black beans and tortillas, some melted cheese over it. Um, there's protein not only in the eggs, but also in the beans. There's fiber. It's delicious. That's a meal. You can take... Um, some rice, make some coconut rice. You've got rice in storage. Instead of having just bland water-cooked rice, take out some coconut milk, which lasts a long time, by the way. Um, don't buy the light stuff. Buy the full fat. Uh, replace half of the water that you would cook the rice with um, with this coconut milk. Throw in uh, a little bit of cilantro and a knob of butter, salt and pepper. All of a sudden, you've got a delicious coconut rice. You spoon a big ladle of those brothy beans that you've now seasoned, what about a canned chipotle pepper, right? Those last almost forever. Take out a chipotle pepper out of a can, chop it up, throw it into your bean pot. You were mentioned being a gardener. You've got culinary herbs. Get some cilantro or some beautiful fresh oregano. It goes amazing in Mexican food. And um, toss that into your black beans and then scoop a big ladle full of that over your coconut rice with some grated sh- uh, cheddar cheese, something sharp, maybe a little bit of um, salsa, a few corn chips, and all of a sudden you've got a midweek meal that really costs pennies. Most of it, the hard part anyway, the beans were made ahead over the weekend. And a little tip, you can use your terrorist pressure cooker and get those beans cooked in about 30 minutes. Um, that is a simple way to have a great meal and... It's inexpensive. I mean, rice and beans are literally pennies per serving, but really delicious, a lot of fiber and a lot of flavor when you're using some fresh herbs and things like that. Also, you can make, what about, you know, a chicken burrito. You can grill some chicken in eight or 10 minutes. You've got the black beans already cooked. You can put them inside of a flour tortilla with some cheese and sour cream, maybe some of that leftover coconut rice. All of a sudden, you've got a really neat um, burrito. So that's uh, just a couple of ideas there. Also, you know, with cooking things ahead, pasta makes terrific cook-ahead food. We do it all the time. We cook pasta ahead of time. This, the, the, the secret here is making sure that it's not overcooked. Al dente. Al dente means to the tooth, or when you take that piece of pasta out of the boiling water, you should be able to have slight resistance, uh, or, or it should be a little tough when you, when you bite through it. That's al dente. And remember, when you take pasta out of the water, it's going to continue to cook for a few minutes. So if you're planning on cooking this ahead of time, make sure it's al dente because later on you're going to be putting it in a saucepan or back in the oven, whatever it might be. It's going to continue to cook. If you murder it in the beginning, you're going to be dealing with pasta that falls apart later, and that is a miserable experience. So learn to cook your pasta way less than you might think. And you do that by t- tasting it during the cooking, getting it into the sink, and putting copious amounts of cold water over it and mixing it around until there's no steam coming out of it and it's cool. Then you pop it in a, a zip bag with a little bit of olive oil and mix it around. You can freeze it like that, and you can keep it in the refrigerator. So we talked about the five mother sauces. Let's say you make your own tomato sauce, and you can go to a club store and buy a number 10 can of crushed tomatoes for $2.79. That's a lot of tomato sauce. So then you use that infusion method. You take some good olive oil, fresh rosemary from your garden, garlic, onions, put them in a pot of olive oil on super low heat and just let them kind of get to know each other for 25 minutes. And you can cook easily for 25 minutes if you've got the heat low enough without the onions or the garlic showing any color. Once you do that, now you've got this infused oil You can add it, um, you can add tomatoes to it, a little Parmesan cheese, maybe some more fresh herbs, salt and pepper, of course, maybe a touch of cream to kind of lighten some of the tomato acidity. All of a sudden you've got an interesting tomato sauce that can be portioned up into, um, you know, little Tupperware deals, frozen, keep some of it in the fridge, easily last two weeks in there. And then you've already got some pasta cooked ahead. Let's say it's, you've got some simple farfalle, which is those bowtie pastas. You got those cooked ahead. You come home from work, you and your wife, you take out a little container of that um, infused tomato sauce, which is just bursting with herbs and garlic. You go to the garden. You get some fresh um, oregano, maybe a little bit of fresh parsley. You chop it up on your board, take out the skillet, a little bit of olive oil. You throw in the pasta, start to warm it up in there, add a little couple scoops of that tomato sauce, saute it all around, fresh herbs, grating of Parmesan cheese. All of a sudden, you've got some incredible pasta in, you know, 8, 10 minutes, something like that. You can put a piece of grilled fish over it, piece of grilled chicken. Um, you can do lots and lots of stuff with things like that. Another great thing to make ahead is things like beef. Take your local beef, and we here in Montana get a lot of uh, elk. We get a lot of deer, and a lot of our beef literally comes from three miles from here. We like to take it and cook it ahead of time, and usually add the flavors of onions and garlic to the beef and again, don't cook it to death. you know cook it for a few minutes, take some of the pinkness out of it, and then portion it up or put it in a big pot for later. You can make things like Bolognese sauce like you talked about now you you have some of the tomato sauce that I just mentioned, bolognese sauce you can make um shepherd's pie with it. You can do lot burritos. You can do lots of stuff with meat that's been cooked ahead. Same thing with sausage. Make sausage. I just made, um, 14 pounds of toasted fennel sausage. Beautiful stuff. Totally natural. No fillers. No MSG. No cure. Just meat and spices. Tastes amazing. Got it made ahead. So you can have sausages and peppers. You can, um, have a uh, pizza, which we had the other night with sliced Fennel sausage on top of it, you know, really thin crust, ne- Neapolitan style, nice crispy brown spots all over it. And you can do a lot of things. You can make sausage sandwiches with it, breakfast sausage. So you're on the right track with cooking ahead with um, commodity-type foods, rice, beans, um, dried potatoes. The other day, for instance, I went into my preps and I had some of those sort of hash brownie looking uh, dehydrated potatoes, like $2.50 for a huge tub of these things. They last a long, long time. And I took those things, rehydrated them, and I had some tough food critics, people from Germany, my mother-in-law, who... She said, you're using, I thought you were a chef. She really got all over me. I said, just wait until you taste it. Rehydrated those potato flakes, put them in a casserole, and then infused some cream and milk with garlic and rosemary. Took that mixture and um, ladled it on top of the potatoes, added a little bit of shredded cheese, and baked it for about 40 minutes. Man, was that good. I mean, it was, you could spoon it out. It It was moist and kind of like, not pudding like, but it was, it was just really luscious and, deli- and everyone loved it and it was so good. There was leftovers the next morning. My father-in-law and I had fried eggs with some of that potato casserole and toast. So there are a lot of things that you can do to uh, increase your flavor in your preps. I know I'm going a little long here. I get excited about this food stuff. But um, remember, fresh herbs, things like citrus juice and citrus zest, very important. Most people squeeze the juice, they toss out the zest. You should zest your fruits and get that citrus off of there. Lemon, lime, orange can be incredible on top of different foods. Just do a little research. If anybody has any questions, you can contact me. Keith at HarvestEating.com, happy to help. Uh love when people are cooking from their preps. I do it all the time with beans. Uh, one last one, white beans. I cook a big pot of white beans, and then I make a white bean soup out of it. I'll make crushed white beans with olive oil and herbs and put it over toast. Bruschetta, as the Italians say. Delicious little snack can be made up in no time. Uh, marinated white beans, olive oil, herbs, a little bit of red wine vinegar goes great next to a piece of grilled chicken. So there's plenty of things that you can do. But uh, anybody wants any help, just... uh Check me out. Make sure you guys check out the podcast and thanks to all you TSPers for tuning into the Harvest Eating Podcast. It is on iTunes. I really appreciate it. And uh, I wanted to offer you guys uh, a little special with Memorial Day coming. Um, Jack talks about the Harvest Eating Spices. Um, They are 20% off until next tuesday now you guys get 15 percent off in the msb but just use the coupon code memorial if you use that code you'll get 20 percent off spices this is going to end on tuesday because there'll be a pretty good run on them but uh, i appreciate all of your support very much and jack same for you thank you so much and uh, i hope everybody has a terrific weekend take care
1: awesome stuff from chef keith as usual let's go ahead and take another call
5: Hi, Jack. Root in Tucson, Arizona. I got a quick question about African sumac trees. Uh, Most specifically, uh, whether or not they would be good to be ground up as mulch, or to chop and drop the root shoots, or whenever I'm doing any pruning. I was talking to a guy today at a local nursery, and he said that they are, um, contain some kind of poison, which is not going to be good for those uses. I plan on chopping down these three, if that's the case. And if that is the case, what could I possibly do, you know, with the tree that I've cut down? Uh, I imagine it was something that is probably not suitable for burning either. What can I do? Thanks a lot for any suggestions. Appreciate it. Love the show. Bye.
1: You know, there used to be a time in the history of our country where a guy at the hardware store was the guy that you talked to about a problem with hardware. And a guy at a nursery was a place that you you got really great information uh, about trees and horticulture and and things like that. Um, And those days are, uh, by and large, gone. I don't mean no disrespect, because there are some stellar people in retail. Uh, I've met a few of them. Uh, Even at places like Lowe's, I've met a few that are just stellar. But the overall uh, sliding scale average, the bell curve average of the knowledge of people in these establishments that work at the retail level now is about a D minus overall. The person you talk to is probably confused on multiple matters. They first of all probably think you're talking about sumac like we have here in the United States, our native sumacs like staghorn sumac and, and what have you. And number two, his confusion is he thinks those are poisonous. Okay, So both of those are incorrect. African sumac is a tree from Africa, and it's a a highly used ornamental tree that's become a little bit invasive, but actually it has a lot of problems. But those problems are all its susceptibility to many diseases uh, that we have here in the United States, like Folsom Wilt and some other things. So it's a tree that you really have to do a lot of maintenance with uh, in a lot of places, other places not so much, if those things aren't there, to keep it healthy and happy. And if it's in a place where it can really be healthy and happy, it has the ability to really kind of start reproducing and establishing itself natively. But it's not poisonous. Now, here's the other thing that the guy you talked to is probably confused about. He's confusing something that would be poison in contact with human skin and allopathic, which would be preventing other species from growing. Uh, neither of which African sumac is guilty of. It just doesn't have either of those properties. So you can chop chop, and drop and shred and use Af- African sumac the way you would just about any other hardwood species of trees with no worries or concerns. That said, if you said, I'm going to use 100% mulch from African sumac for everything I do, I'd probably say, if you cannot do that, please not do that. But I'd say that if you were going to use elm or maple or oak or what have you, the best mulch is going to be made up of multiple species. But if all you have is from one thing, go ahead and use it. Just if you, if you can kind of mix it up a bit, if you can throw in some other prunings and stuff like that, if in your, like if you're shredding this yourself, you're going to rent a shredder or whatever, you know, if you can pick up a few bags of leaves from your neighbors from various trees and include leaves that are shredded in there or something like that, it would just be a good idea from a diversity standpoint. So any, pest or disease that may have accumulated the species-specific is mitigated. But I would tell you that no matter what species you were using for this, but just remember that a guy at a fill-in-the-blank store is generally not an expert in what they're doing. Some of them are and even some of them that are really knowledgeable may not really be as knowledgeable as you'd like them to be because they're conventionally knowledgeable as soon as they start talking about using commercial fertilizers and things like that it's not that they don't know what they're doing it's just that they know something in a specific angle that's not the angle you're coming from and you're better off to not take their advice on those components of things but you know that person that really knows this stuff that says you know what apples just don't do well here he may be right about that You may say, you know, our customers that that when they're looking for a fruit tree, turn more to plums uh, and and put in two for cross pollination to make sure that's taken care of. Generally, are a lot happier four or five years later than our customers that insist on buying apples from us. Uh, That's probably good advice, and that's the kind of advice you're looking for. When you get advice like, "Oh, don't do that; it's poisonous," you just just nod and walk away because it's bad advice. Let's take another call. Oh wait, just real quick to cover all the bases there. There is a poison sumac. And I wouldn't hesitate to use it as mulch other than the fact that if you are allergic to it and, you know, this is one of those things that not everybody is, but most people are. Um, I, I, it would cause the same type of rash and problems that poison ivy would. So it would probably be a bad idea. But even poison sumac isn't going to cause problems. It's not allopathic. So the way you tell poison sumac from, you know, staghorn sumac, smooth sumac, that are actually very good plants for a lot of uses, including the vitamin C that the little fruit cut berry, hairy berry things that the seeds in them have on them is a a staghorn sumac or smooth sumac or any of the beneficial sumacs have a berry that eventually turns red and they have an upturned cone that the berries form on that kind of looks almost like crepe myrtle in a weird kind of sort of way. A poison sumac has a white berry, flower-like formation that doesn't, it's not upright, it doesn't come up from the limbs, it hangs downward. And the leaves are very similar, and they're the they're same, they're same family, but they're very, very different plants. And it's almost impossible to confuse one for the other as long as you know what you're looking for. And the most common thing you find throughout the eastern United States is staghorn and smooth, smooth sumac, and many people are under the impression that they're, they're a poison plant, and they're not. They're actually an incredibly beneficial plant. They're very pretty. They'll grow just about anywhere, and they're huge, huge in vitamin C. And those berries pushed into some water and kind of pressed out, and then strain that off makes an incredible kind of pink lemonade type thing that's really good for you. Uh, let's take the next call. I'm sorry I had to throw that in there.
2: Hi, Jack. It's Andy from Temperance, Michigan. I've been looking into building a well in my backyard, mostly for watering my garden and thinking about doing that sprinkler on the roof to lower your heating cost thing. And someone had brought up the idea of putting it in my basement. i already eight feet down. And I occasionally get water seeping through the basement walls very rarely, and they said it would help with that. However, that is the only information I have, and wondered if you would hear anything about it. The directions I've seen online have all been driving galvanized pipe into the ground. Well, I know if you get any input. Thanks. You know, this is one of those
1: few times where I go, not only am I not sure, I really have no flipping idea at all if that's a good idea. Putting a well in your basement. And I thought to myself, hmm, who do I know that might have an answer to that? And of course first person that came to my mind was Stephen Harris. He's got an answer.
6: Here it is. Hello, Andy from Michigan. This is Steve Harris of the expert panel coming to answer your question about putting a well into your basement. Well, as they say, that is a deep subject. There are quite a few people I know uh, who have put wells into their basement. Now, half the country listening doesn't have basements. But Michigan, my home state, is a state where, in the northern area, you have lots of basements. Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania. In all of the northern area, you got basements because you got to have a foundation. and It's usually just a little bit more work to put in a full basement. And you get twice the room. So that's one of the reasons they do it. But wells and basements, generally, when people do it, they have a higher water table like you, so some water seeps into your basement when it gets really rainy, you probably have a higher water table. So you got to find out first how far away your water is, and your local city will help determine how what the water table is below you. And generally you don't want to put in a well, you want to go down like 30 or 50 or 60 feet. You don't want to go down 100, 200, 300, 400 feet to get water. So, it's gonna be also a small diameter well, like one inch, two inch, or thereabouts. And you're gonna to have to bust a hole in the concrete in the floor and then you're going to have to use your standard well drilling practices to drill that that diameter well. And I recommend you put it right next to your utility sink. That would be a good place to put it. And the other thing is most of these wells, they're not electric. Most people put hand pumps on them. Uh, That just makes everything simpler in terms of it's sealed at the top automatically. It's using a simple lever and lift mechanism to get the water out. It's always working. And you know some of these hand pumps a little bit of work gives you an awful lot of water so it could give you more than enough water for you can use for bathing more enough for cooking it's going to be a clean source of water so yeah it's a pretty good idea if you want to do that uh, talk with some of the local well companies in your area and any local well company will be able to tell you how deep the water is as well um they might they go well. I haven't heard of that, but you just you might find one that is open to it and says, "Yeah, we can do that," or we can tell you how to do that and put it into your basement. You'll also don't forget you're gonna have to patch the concrete uh, where you busted it out and drilled your little well, but that shouldn't be too much of a problem. As far as insurance and liability stuff goes, I don't know what that does. You have to check with your insurance agency, but generally, what they don't know won't hurt you because. It's not like this thing is going to flood and, and ruin your basement or anything like that. So uh, I'd say a pretty good idea. Do your research. Talk to some well companies. Talk to the city. Make sure it's not against code. Well, I don't care about that. You probably don't either. And uh, go for it. In the meantime, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. If you want to hear all my past stuff, as you all know, it's at solar one two three four dot com. If you missed me, I got a whole new show that I just did on my on my own on first aid at firstaid one two three four dot com. I miss you guys. I'm working on a great show for TSP. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
1: Well, very well done by Steve as usual, and I, I think you guys are really going to be surprised when you find out with the uh the next project he's working on to showcase on TSP for you guys is. Uh, but with that, let's go ahead and take another call.
3: Hey, Jack, this is Andy on the New Hampshire seacoast. I also go by Mondevu on the TSP forum. I wanted to know how you would craft a permaculture-based approach to control poison ivy. We just moved up to our new property here in southeastern New Hampshire. And most of it's pasture, but we've got a few pieces of woodland. And now that it's spring, all we have a lush, lush carpet of poison ivy that's come up, and all our woodland some stuff coming up on our outbuildings. Uh, I'm not sure what it
2: does, but so I don't know what to replace it with. And I also don't have room for a goat in my life right now, so I was running if you had any thoughts on the matter. All right, I appreciate what you do. Just keep up the great work. Take care.
1: For those that remember, this is going to sound completely off topic at first, but for those that remember the 80s and Cheech and Chong, there was one of their movies where Cheech did a song... Mexican-Americans go to night school and take Spanish and get a D or something like that was one of the lines in it. And when he got done with his song, Tommy Chong said, I wrote a song too, man. It's the same but different. Here's where it comes in. The answer, <laughs> everybody remember that movie, by the way? It was just a stupid, dumbass movie, but it was funny as hell. Uh, especially when Cheech Chong, the one Spanish word he said that would be good for him to use, which was, I won't say it online, but I guess I should, because I wouldn't not say the other word that goes with pendejo, and he was saying, hello, pendejos, to all the people driving through the barrio. That was, that was pretty hysterical, too. Anyway, um, it's the same but different. So the, the thing about poison ivy is we somehow think it's different, and it is, because it makes us itch and it makes us not happy, and we have a greater desire to get rid of it. But what's the same is the way to get rid of it's always the same. We remove as much of it as we can, we disadvantage it, and then we advantage something to take its place. So I think the caller was on to that by what the caller said, um, about this whole situation uh, and say, I don't know what to put in its place. So that tells me we're already heading to the right direction. So there's two ways that we can really eliminate poison ivy really, really well. One is if the place that has like the bushy, brushy, shady habitat isn't a place that we really want to be a bushy, brushy, shady habitat. We actually are planning eventually to open that up and create some kind of a pasture environment anyway. Go ahead and open it up and cut it to the ground, and it'll the sun. Especially once you've cut it to the ground and it's trying to grow back in the heat of the sun of summer, it'll just give up and die. It's a shade loving plant. You don't generally walk out in the middle of the field and see a big clump of poison ivy. It likes the shade. It doesn't like the sun. If you open up the area in in the summer and you don't cut it back, it very well may survive that year. But when it dies back to the ground with the cold, it's probably not coming back the following year. So that's fine if that's what you want to do. If you don't want to open the area up, though, with enough sun to kind of change the habitat so that it'll go away, then we got to come up with a different approach so the what we would want to do and it depends on how big an area we're talking about if this area is a few hundred square feet well then we can get very intensive with our management and getting rid of it um if it's you know half an acre that's covered in the stuff you're going to end up having to learn to live with it to a degree um you're not really going to get rid of all of it, it you're just not it's a, it's a native plant that has a place there but what you can do is then eliminate it in places where you would come into contact with it regularly and you don't want to So the first thing we want to do then is we want to cut it to the ground. And we want to cut it to the ground as best we can. You can, and somebody's going to freak out now. you got to really listen to me because the last time I said this, people freaked out. You can use a flame torch and torch the roots in the ground to help suppress the regrowth. You would have to take all of the above ground portion of the plant away from the area Never burn poison ivy because the the stuff that's in it will go up into the smoke and the vapors and spread and can be very very toxic if breathed in. It can actually cause people to break out with it downwind of you. Okay, so don't burn the ivy itself. Heat the ground up and and, and you're scorching the roots in the ground. Okay, So that is completely removing the vine before you do that. And even be careful with that because there can be some off-gassing there, and there's probably some residual ivy around on the ground. It's probably not necessary, but it wouldn't hurt, and I would do it in a controlled situation, Uh, and I would do it at a time when you're not going to burn the forest down by doing it. And I would probably still wear at least a basic respirator mask while I did it, and I would probably do it about three times over three days, briefly each day to try to suppress that regrowth, And then even if you don't do it, this would be the next step. And in a place where you can do a lot of intensive management, where it's not that big an area, you're just trying to recover, go in and put down a layer of cardboard, a full thick layer of cardboard. And and get a hose out there and soak that cardboard wet. It's so important. That cardboard needs to be drenched and sticky to the ground. Okay, Then put down a thick layer of mulch. Then, make little moon craters. If you, if you guys remember the episode about Yakuba Sakadoa, the guy that stopped the desert in the Sahal region, it's almost like a little mini Zai's. So Zai's are where we dig a hole, we fill it with organic matter, and then we plant into the hole, right? And then that rehydrates and rebuilds the whole land. So, then you take, you, you make little moon craters. All in your mulch. Okay? And then take a knife and cut a hole just where your moon crater is, a little hole, not as big as the moon crater. moon crater is probably four inches in diameter. In the cardboard, you're going to cut maybe a one-inch hole. You probably, if you soaked it, like I said, stick your fingers through there and just open it up a little bit. Fill that little hole with a little pocket of compost or good garden soil, and into that hole, plant the replacements. Let me give you my three... Top replacements, number one, and you can get two of them probably right in the same woods the, the, the poison ivy's grown. It's almost inevitable you'll find patches that you can dig up and root off and plant and don't have to spend any money on them. The first one is jewelweed. Now you're going to have to look these up to see what they look like so you can identify them. Jewelweed actually gets confused for poison ivy a lot, uh, and it is somewhat easy to confuse because of the way the leaves look at all, but really it's a diff- totally different plant. You're going to plant that in there. That's a creeper viner that loves the same habitat. The biggest reason you're going to plant that is if you get poison ivy, you're going to go get some of your jewelweed, you're going to smash leaves up, and you're going to rub it all over your poison ivy. It's probably the best thing in the world to help stop poison ivy from itching, and it'll do better for you than calamine lotion. So not only have we replaced the... Invasive species we don 't want with something to occupy the same space we brought in a cure for the the problems that that thing causes to us as human beings. The next one is called virginia creeper you 're probably going to find this just about anywhere that you find poison ivy <clears throat> again, take cuttings, root them off, dig it up, and, and plant Virginia creeper and jewelweed in there and then if you really want to put in like the X factor, something that'll just go ape shit in that environment. Uh, cause now you've got the moisture held in by the mulch, you've got compost in there, you've got shade. <clears throat> go down to your local store and buy, you know, a, a flat of English ivy. You know, you, you get the six, not the expensive four inch pots, you get the little six packs of it, buy a whole flat of it, it'll cost you 30 bucks. And plant the shit out of English ivy in there. And that English ivy will be up the trees and all over the place and all over the ground and crawling all over, jewelweed and, and Virginia creeper mixed in with it. That'll defeat your poison ivy. And, again, if you're trying to get it completely eradicated from an acre wood lot that you have, it probably isn't going to happen. But you can take this slow approach to pushing it out of the areas that you're going to often access. Uh, that's the best I can do for you there. Um I would say that one other way that you might be able to kill it, I talked about a method that I've seen done to kill ants in the past, uh fire ants, where basically there's a large probe that's stuck down in the ground. You pump steam into the ground. I bet you you could steam the crap out of those roots. You're not going to have any of the off-gassing problems of burning, and I bet you you'd scorch anything down there. But that would make it even more important to very, very quickly plant something in its place because, yeah, you've sterilized, sanitized that couple hundred square feet or whatever it is by doing this a couple hundred times, you know, one every four square feet or something like that. But as soon as you stop, well, what's going to happen? Pioneers are coming in. And one thing to understand about uh, poison ivy, when it comes to the ground space in a shaded area, it's a pioneer. It's just doing its job. It's just, you know, some of us are not so happy when we touch it. I'm a person with very, I, I don't have a big problem with poison ivy. I, if I get poison ivy rash at all, it's always like if I have scratches from a briar where the skin's open, I'll get a little bit of bumps right around that, but I never get it like all over the place. Um, so I've been a little less concerned of it. Some people, the wind blows the wrong way. They get it head to toe. And, uh, that's why it's a problem for those folks. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this
0: is Ian. I wanted to get your thoughts on the metric system. Uh, we live in the United States, and we we use uh, a different system than the metric system. And I just wanted to know, uh, I,
2: I've listened for a couple of years, but I've never heard you rail against uh, having a Coke and Pepsi, Walmart, Target of measurement systems. I have a young daughter, and I'm probably going to lean towards teaching her exclusively the metric system. Um, she can use the standard or English system or whatever it's called if she wants, but uh, I think I want her primary language of measurement to be metric. just seems easier. i love to know what you think about that.
1: Thanks. Well, this is going to be a very short answer, and it may not be what you want to hear. Remember, if you ask a question, you're going to get an honest answer. Uh, first and foremost, you'll probably like this one, teach your kids whatever you want them to know, and two, I don't care. I don't care about whether it's in gallons or liters or whatever, and I think that most people in America, this is something they tried to shove down the throats of the American public in the 70s. The metric system is superior; it will replace everything in the next 10 years. No, it hasn't. We like gallons in this country. We like miles in this country. It's just who we are, and it's 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 part of what makes us different. It's one of the few places left where we use that old you know imperial measurement system, and we you know we're the, the the people that threw out the king, and then used his mathematical system so learn to live with it because the rest of the country is not going to change because you want it to on this particular issue and if you want your kids to know the metric system great teach them the metric system but just because something's easier doesn't make it superior i actually think the metric system is quite superior as a scientific measurement system and i think that the scientific community even in this country uses it but when it comes to you know am i going to put you know liters in my car or am I going to put gallons? The American consumer knows what a gallon is. They can see it in their head. And they're not changing. And they're not going to change. And you shouldn't care. And I don't either. Uh, Quick, easy one. Let's take another one.
5: Hi, Jack. Rick here in Indiana. Going back through some of the older episodes around 618, 619, you had mentioned a survival channel or the collaboration with several different podcasts and just a collaboration of information. I um, haven't gotten any other episodes after that, but uh, whatever happened to that, or is that something that kind of fell to the wayside and maybe we can bring it back? sounded like a great idea and interested to hear it. Thanks.
1: That's another quick, easy, short one. Uh, the survivalchannel.com exists. It functions. It works. It has a lot of great content uh, that's uh, integrated into it, my show and shows from a lot of other people, videos, uh, blogs. It's all there. Um, what never happened is Nick and I never, like, figured out exactly how we were going to charge for advertising with it and how we were going to make an ad platform that would let you guys advertise it, those of you with blogs and stuff, and make money per click. Um, so there's like that business component of it is not done. And I probably need, you know, I just, when that's going on, you forget about things. I need to probably talk to Nick about getting that back on track. But uh, the site itself, if you want to go find tons of great self-sufficiency content and listen to podcast after podcast after podcast from great podcasters, uh, all different – I mean, Jason Akers, Doc Bones, and Nurse Amy are in there. Uh, there's tons of great content there. You just go to thesurvivalchannel.com, and it'll just – Pick a show and start playing it. If you don't like it, hit the fast forward button. And it'll play the next one and, and so on and so forth until you find something you're interested in. It's a great way to find new content. Check it out, the SurvivalChannel.com.
2: Hi, Jack. This is Charles calling from Iowa. I have a gardening question specifically related to the use of mulch. I'm wondering if mulch has some potential negative consequences. Uh, I've got what I've noticed are a ton of little white grubs after having put a pretty thick layer of mulch using both wood chips and straw on the garden late last fall or early last winter. I can't hardly even put a garden trowel in the ground without digging up three or four of those things. And I'm wondering if I need to be concerned about them gnawing on some of the roots of my plants. Perhaps it's not an issue because they have all that woody, fibrous material to eat on in the form of mulch, so maybe actually the mulch will be a diversion. I haven't noticed any trouble yet, but was just concerned when I started to plant and saw them. I also have had some problems with some things possibly rotting in the ground because we've had a very, very wet spring, and I'm wondering in a wet climate, getting 35 to 40 inches of rain a year, uh, is that an issue, and do I need to be pulling the mulch back over my beds early in the spring to get those things dried out so I don't have that trouble. Thanks for your thoughts on that, Jack. Talk to you later.
1: Uh, The grubs are not a problem in the garden. I actually talked about this last week, but I wanted to expand on it a little. Is there any time that mulch might not be a good idea? In a really wet, really, really moist area with lots of slugs, it can actually be a problem um, it, with a coarse mulch will will be an issue in those situations sometimes. So that would be the one place where you might really want to think about what you mulch with and how you mulch with. And in that area, I would mulch around my plants with sawdust. That's the one time I would go to sawdust because they hate that. They can't stand the way it sticks to them. But of course, your mulch can become a slug breeding ground in some environments. That's about the only place that it would be an issue. Now, if you have ducks, you're not going to have a slug problem. So that's your solution if you can have ducks. Uh, with grubs, grubs generally eat the roots of grasses. And, and most grubs, that's what they do. And you're probably looking at Japanese beetle grubs or Junebug beetle grubs. Uh, and we have them here. I see them in my garden all the time. The fact that you're using observation, which is a permaculture technique, I see grubs, but I don't see a detrimental effect on what I'm growing with the grubs, tells you the grubs aren't a problem. They're a natural part of the ecosystem. And what they'll eat in addition to grass is decaying organic matter. And since you're probably building rich, fertile soil, they're not eating the wood chips. They're eating the rich, decaying organic matter in the soil, and they're pooping it back out. So, they are not good for your lawn. Like, those are bad for a grass turf lawn. That's, the, and I've seen in, in, you know, certain years where the climate's right, the numbers are high, it's a little bit dry. I've seen them wipe out a lawn. I've never seen them do any damage to a garden. So, I, I would actually say, if they're in the garden, good, because that means they're not in the lawn. And, uh, now, when I see one, do I go, look at the pretty little grub that's part of my natural ecosystem. I'm going to leave him there. No, I pick his little butt up, and I always, when I'm working in my garden, have a little bucket or a cup with me, and I throw them all in there. And then I go give them to my good friends, the chickens. And the chickens become my best friends when I feed them those great big fat and protein-enriched infused grubs. And if you don't like them there, and you'd like to get rid of the ones that you see, um, before I had chickens, I had what was called the -the back-of-the-shovel technique which is you turn the shovel, and then you pick up the grub, and you pitch him against it, and he splats, and you shove him right back in there as a decaying piece of organic matter that the worms can eat. Um, and I, I don't have a hatred for them, but I don't really like them, but I don't really worry about them. And I think that we have to start, when we're using mulches, you're going to open up your mulch and see stuff running around in there, and that's a good thing. And as long as it's not something that's eating your plants, in general, the best approach is leave it alone. It's probably counterbalancing something that could be eating your plants. So the number one thing that people tell me about their mulch is, I got these pill bugs everywhere, and they're eating my plants. Pill bugs are, first of all, not actually a bug. They're a crustacean. They're in the same family as a shrimp. They only eat things that are already dead. They will not harm your vegetables. They're a great part of the ecosystem. And they, people say, well, I have all these pill bugs, and then I go out and all my plants are just look like somebody cut them over with a knife. Pill bugs didn't do it. A little bugger called a cutworm did it. And somebody, and the reason I wanted to revisit this topic is I just learned something awesome to deal with cutworms. I've been telling people for years, get the little plastic cups, make collars, and stick them over your, your, your tender seedlings to protect them from the evil cutworm, which works a lot of time unless the little cutworm happens to come up inside the hole. So it's a craft shoot, but it works a lot, and it's the best method I've had until now. So, this dude, all he has is a great big can of pretty good sized nails, probably like, you know, I don't know, 10 penny or something like that, but a big, you know, two and a half inch kind of heavy nail, something you'd use to frame lumber with. And they're all rusty and all because he's been using them for years this way. All he does is put them right up against like a little stake, his seedlings. So, it's it's like the, the nail itself is right against the stalk of the seedlings. Just sticks them in the ground and just waits till the seedlings are big and woody enough that the cutworms won't harm them no more. Pulls the nails out, puts them in a the can, puts them away till next year. And what happens is that little cutworm comes along and they don't just kind of crawl up there and eat it. They kind of wrap around. And if you've ever found them, they're like a little gray and white worm. They're not the grub, they're a cutworm. They're smaller. And they grub up, around, they, they, they circle that thing and then they start chewing on it and they start gnawing on it and they eat, it's it's so wasteful, it's why you hate them so much. They don't eat the whole plant, they just eat like a quarter inch to an inch of the stalk, and then they go to the next one, and they do it again, and they do it again. Well, when he rolls up around that and tries to bite into it, and bites into the steel of a nail, it goes away. And he's the guy says, I have no problem with cutworms, so I wanted to throw that in there as well. Mulch, folks, is your friend, and the little creatures that live in it are your friends as well. And 90% or more of them are beneficials. And anything that decomposes or consumes dead and dying organic matter is something you want in there. They are, you know, we talk about worms all the time and how worm castings are so valuable. Pill bugs, they're decomposers. They're manuring. They're doing lots of work for you. The pill bug is a good thing. And, you know, when you, what I call spot compost, they're your best friends. The worms and the pill bugs both. You take some, you get a potato you're gonna cook and it's got some bad spots in it and you slice the bad spots off. And instead of throwing it in a compost pile, you just take it out to your garden and you lift up the mulch and you lay it down on the ground and put it over. Those little suckers are gonna come on there. They're gonna eat that. They're gonna chew it. And instead of waiting for it to compost for, you know, 30 days to two months or longer, depending on how good you are composting, it's gone in a couple days and it's immediately converted into good quality organic matter. So there you go on that. Let's take another call.
0: Hey, Jack, this is Jake, also known as Prepper Survivor on Zello. Uh, what do you think about our freedoms as it relates to the recent scandals that are breaking? Um, referencing the um, Benghazi uh, issue, and also the IRS targeting Tea Party groups, 912 groups, and also religious groups, Jewish groups, uh, and then also the AP having their. Uh, information basically taking with, without due process, without a proper channel. Uh, I believe that there was a, a, a subpoena, but they didn't, did not present a subpoena. They took two months of all phone calls in and out. This is alarming. And I just want to know if you think this is a watershed event. Is this something that can, you think will grow legs and create a backlash or will it just be the first balloon that goes up that uh, actually allows the, the government to move forward with uh, more oppressive uh, issues or more oppressive strategies against those who believe in liberty. Anyway, just want to hear your comments about it and what you think about the timing of these events. Thanks.
1: Well, as it relates to our freedoms, let me just put it to you this way: our freedoms have been eroded and crapped on for for decades now. And uh, the the illusion that we are as free as we think we are is something we should all let go of and start, because that's the only way we can start fighting to recover them. And I don't think it's that germane to what's going on here. I think that the real issue of what's going on here, the interesting thing is, and let me just say, I think this could be the fall of of President Barack Obama. And as much as I don't like the ass clown, I don't say that with any glee in my voice, because having a president taken down Um, is, is never good for a nation. It really isn't, but sometimes it is necessary. And what's kind of happened here is the Teflon has worn off, the stopper's been pulled out of the tub, and we're seeing all of the garbage come out of the bottom, and there's so much. Benghazi is something that should have, it should have been a bigger deal when we first heard about it, and the lives of Americans were basically just allowed to be taken. And these men were begging for help, and our government knew, and they did nothing. And everybody connected to it and responsible should be looking at the inside of a prison cell. And I don't know whether the president himself was aware or not, but if he was, he belongs there too. Okay, And that's just Benghazi. But let's talk about what happened here. What's really going on? Because even the president's, you know, most loyal, ardent, you know, mainstream press has now turned on him and is digging into all this stuff. He screwed them over. 20 phone lines of the associated press were wiretapped and the AP has been the absolute watchdog for this president. They have turned their back on stories like Fast and Furious. They've even, to some level, discredited them. They did the same with Benghazi. There's nothing to see here. Move along. This is just a right-wing attack. So that opened the gates of the press. So the press that have been his loyal companions are now like, you know, we're not cool with this. And, and to, to, I don't think people get that this actually might be the biggest story. In, in, in addition to some of the other things we're about to talk about, Because there's a track record of this type of activity taking a president down. There is almost no difference. Let's just put it a different way. There's very little difference between the AP wiretapping and the way it was done and the Watergate scandal under President Richard Nixon. It's almost the same thing, including the White House's story as to why it was done. It was a matter of national security. They always say that. But this was wrong, this was dirty, this was backhanded, and as far as I'm concerned, this was illegal. And the thing about the AP is, you know, it's all good and well to turn your back on them. Now you did it to us. Now, wait a minute, now we're not so cool with it. But there is another side to the whole we'll look the other way thing with the IRS scandal. The IRS scandal, two IRS scandals, the one with the medical records and the information leaks in California, which now there's a class action lawsuit against the Internal Revenue Service being put together for $60,000 per individual in the class. You do the math on that, that's $1.5 trillion. Do I think that they'll successfully sue the IRS for that much? I don't think so, but I think that there is legs to that story and there's a lot of violation of law and civil liberties and what was done there. And if they did it there, how do we know we're not going to find 20 other places? And that's the thing. The threads starting to unravel. The people that have been the watchdogs that have protected the ass clown are starting to go, we don't like this anymore. This hope and change shit, what really was a lie? All right. And they're starting to pull on the threads. And then on top of it there you know there's there, it was only low level employees and we'll make sure they're fired and we have people resigning and then the president says he fired them after they've resigned uh, and then this this thing with let me tell you about the conservative group thing and why this is this is scaring the shit out of many liberal groups if you let this happen now and you don't do something about it what happens when the the backlash hits And next thing you know, you have a very conservative, staunch conservative president, and the Senate swings to the Republicans, and the House stays in the hands of the Republicans, which by the next main general election cycle, I think is what we'll have. We'll have another monopoly, which I don't think is necessarily good. But what happens then if it's okay for the IRS to target specifically conservative groups and no no one speaks up about it, and that group goes on a witch hunt the other way around? Because based on what we know from work that was done about things like ACORN, how much book cooking you think might be going on in the union-infested liberal organizations that are out there. How much do you think could be found if a targeted probe was done? (laughs) Probably a lot. And probably way too much to clean up even between now and 2016. Because it's already on. We don't want this. So... The fact that this could get swung around, the fact that the press now feels like you betrayed us. You know, we had your back, dude. We liked you and you betrayed us. Has made people who were unwilling to look at Benghazi or to look at Fast and Furious turn around and go, maybe we should look. And when they looked with a half of an open mind, they went, oh, my God. This did happen, the way all those crazy conservatives were saying. And some of those conservatives are crazy people, just like many of those liberal nutjobs are liberal nutjobs. It doesn't mean that someone's crazy is always lying. Sometimes they're telling you the truth. And even people that are ardent supporters of the president and alternative sort of mainstream alternative media like Jon Stewart are turning on the president and saying, thanks a lot, dude. Thanks a lot for what you just did. You've just given all these crazy conspiracy theorists gas for their fire. You've legitimized half of the stuff we've said is not real. There was some rant by Stewart just like that. That's what's happened. The fake bullshit Teflon coating has worn off. And I think it only gets worse for the president from here. I think you have, at best, a true lame-duck president now. I don't think this guy will be able to get anything done at all, which people will tell us how terrible that is, that we need the government working for solutions. I'll tell you what, the government's done enough. The government has done enough. 3 years of the government doing nothing is probably a good thing. The problem is it won't be that the government does nothing. The Congress and the Senate will do things even though we have you know they're calling the do nothing Congress. Um you may very well see a Republican takeover of the Senate in the midterms. I'm predicting you're going to and this will fuel it and there's no way the Republicans lose the house. And in fact there's no way they lose a commanding majority in the house and before you celebrate There'll be some things they can do that are good, and there'll be some things that they can do that are bad, and they may do the bad stuff first because the president might freaking agree with it and say, at least I can do this and blame them for it and say they forced my hand. So I'm not giving you any kind of real Nostradamus look into what's going to come out of this, other than I'm telling you, at best, the, rep- the president was just neutered, and at worst for the president, he will be impeached and forced out of office. And, again, I think if he knew about what was going on in Benghazi while those men were risking their lives trying to save our ambassador and did nothing to help while they were calling for help, he and everyone else that knew that could have done something. Now, if you knew and there's nothing you could do, like if you said, I'm sending people in and somebody else would say, no, you're not allowed to do that, and there was nothing you could do, okay, fine, I understand. Maybe we should ask you why you didn't say anything, okay, But, you know, prison sells a bit much. But if if a person who was in the chain of command that could have sent assistance and aid to those individuals that failed to act while they were begging for help needs to be looking at the inside of a prison and if that is the president, so be it. Now, it won't happen. But doesn't mean it's not what should happen. It absolutely should happen. Fast and Furious gave guns to Mexican drug runners that later killed Americans working in our law enforcement departments if they anybody that was part of that that knowingly complicitly had the authority to prevent it that didn't should also be looking at the inside of a prison cell now some of you are going to go this is just rush limbaugh conservative speak i don't care what letters after the president's name, or the, the members of the Justice Department's name, or the members of the Department of Defense's name, It's something like this? If this was George Bush and his ilk, I'd be calling for them to be on the inside of a prison cell. If it was Ronald Reagan and his, de- I would be, and I don't think it would have happened, maybe. I don't know, the Rogman thing, the Sandinistas and all, so who knows? I don't care who is in charge. When this type of thing happens on your watch, you've sold out the American people. And I'll tell you this, it comes down in all these scandals to what did the president know and when did he know it? And if it's everything and early on, then the president of the United States is a traitor to the American people, period. If the answer is nothing and not until now, then the president of the United States is incompetent at controlling and managing his staff. So I either have incompetence or criminality. I know I've upset some people. I don't care. You should be pissed. If you're an American, when you look at the totality of all these things together, if you were a supporter of Obama, which I was a supporter of no one, didn't support Bush, Didn't support McCain, didn't support Romney, didn't support Obama, didn't want any of them. Told everyone, you're wasting, you tell me I'm wasting my vote voting third party, you're wasting your vote on all of these people, okay? So, this to me is neutral. Of course you're getting this corruption. I told you you would. It's no surprise to me, but if you supported this guy... You should be more angry than me and more angry than any Republican. He sold you out first because you supported him. You backed him. You put your name next to his and said, I'm endorsing this man. And he just screwed you over and over and over and over and over. And you were tricked, because half of this stuff happened before the reelection to doing it again because you believed the press. Now, you know who gets it? The AP, the Associated Press, they get it. They're pissed exactly for why I just told you you should be pissed. They believed in this ass clown. They had his back. They protected him, and he screwed them over. And now the gloves are off, and they will tear him to shreds because all of the information that all of those people thought, you know, it's bad, but it would be so much worse if that they've been sitting on, it's just going to keep coming. It's going to keep coming. It's going to keep coming. It's going to keep coming. You get it? It's not going to stop. And 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 the people that are delusional, that are so wrapped up in the belief that Obama really is about hope and change, will never believe the facts. But when 60% of the country does, 60% of the voters does, it's over. The people that are... Last-ditch holdouts can't stop the train that's been unleashed. And it's. I know that some of you are very happy about all that. And there is one place to be happy. The people of the country do deserve to know the truth, and justice should be had. But it's a sad day for a nation when you know that a president is either about to be removed from office or completely dysfunctional. For the rest of their term. It's not good for the country. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And you know who gets the blame? Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton. No. The people of this country who have been electing people like this for decades now. We get the blame. We put these people there. And as long as we keep doing it and believe in bullshit about wasting our vote, all you're going to get is a different suit and a different marketing plan and the same corruption and scum running our country. That's what's going on, and that's how it relates to our freedom. We are shitting on our own freedoms. We are giving our own freedoms away, and we are allowing these people to take it. Now, I can't fix that. That's why I come on the air every day and tell you how to build the freedom in your own individual life. But if you want to do it at the national level, it can't be flip the D to an R or the R to a D. It's got to be a complete... Changing of the guard at all levels. And all of these corrupt sons of bitches need to be sent packing out of our country. All of the traitors in our government need to go. That's the truth. Let's take another call.
5: Hey, Jack, this is Rob in San Diego. Uh, Love your show, man. Uh, Just listened to a listener call. And uh, you were mentioning about the pine not being acidic, and pine needles were... And, uh, you said that on a previous podcast and, uh, sounded good to me. So I've, I've been saving my Christmas tree, you know, since Christmas and it's just now starting to dry out where I can easily, uh, harvest the pine needle. Now I thought I was just going to add that into some of my compost, you know, that I was brewing up, just have a separate batch, loads that full of pine needles to raise the, um, acidity for that for blueberries and, and stuff like that. Uh, but then, during that listener callback, to say only when they're green. So, uh, have I been holding on to this Christmas tree, uh, waiting for these needles to dry up, and uh, they are not really going to acidify my soil, or will they still do something? Or shut up a lie? Or you know, if you can just give a little better explanation on uh, if using pine needles is possible, and if so, at what stage in the game, you know, when they're green or when they're dry or what, to get uh, yourself some acidic soil. All
1: right, man, I love the show. Uh, thanks. Bye. Um, great way to come out of being angry and a really quick, simple answer. Yeah, they're pretty much neutral as far as the pH contribution at this point. You might get a, a little tiny marker move toward the acidic range, you know, uh, but... Um, no, you're, you you know, when you, when you do good quality composting with greens and browns together, you're gonna generally end up with a, a pH from 6.8 to 7.2, which is ideal for most things. And blueberries like to be a little bit more acidic. If you want to increase the acidity around your blueberries, take green pine needles to the ground there. And then people will say, well, why is the soil so acidic? in the pine forest where all those needles laying on the ground are, are, are brown and they're dried out. Well, they've already done their work. A lot of those needles when they fell were green. Uh, they did contribute to the acidity of the soil and then they turned brown and became pretty much inert and neutral. So, yeah, you held on to it too long. If you wanted to use your Christmas tree to increase the acidity of your blueberries, as soon as it came out of the house, uh, you should have been cutting uh, pieces off of it and pitching it under there. The good news, though, uh, if you have any pine anywhere in your vicinity, just go grab needles. You don't want to compost it for this purpose. You want to go ahead and use it as a soil amendment straight to the ground. Now, the other thing, though, is don't sweat this so much. Really, I mean, soil pH, unless it's really out of whack, you know, if you're looking at like eight, right, or like five. Right, then you got a problem. Then you're like really away from where you're supposed to be for anything, right? So um if it's any if your soil pH is somewhere in that, you know, six five to seven five range, which is where a lot of good soils are, um and you can come down from there, not go up from there much more. The alkaline really starts to get to be more of a problem faster than the than the than the acidic, honestly, in a lot of situations. Um As long as you're there and if you will just start really building the organic matter and life in your soil and stop tilling it, you will get different layer levels of acidity or alkalinity at different layers in the soil. It will stratify and your plants will send root systems mainly into the layer where the pH is stratified at a level of their they're, they're choosing. So I've seen many places where you have something like a blueberry, which does very well in acidic soil and something like a blackberry that typically is more of an alkaline lover. Uh, and, and they're growing side by side and they're both doing well. And you're wondering, well, how's that work? They both found what they were looking for in the layers. So, yeah, dried, uh, pine needles will do very little from an acidic standpoint. Uh, composted pine will do almost nothing. um, especially composted brown pine. If you use green needles as part of your greens, you, I don't know. I've never done it. I've never analyzed it. Um, I would think you would end up with some acidic contribution, but that the composting process itself would mitigate that. If you want to, to just kind of spot increase acidity, green needles on the ground next to the plant. Let's take another call.
7: Good afternoon, Jack. This is Devin Mass, also known as Prepped Mom on the forum. Question. Where can I get reliable information I can trust to make financial decisions on? My background, I um, have uh, money in a 401k sitting in cash right now and it's stuck inside the 401k and in an IRA. During the up until 2008 we did great on investing, but it seems everywhere I turn I don't trust the information I'm looking at on Motley Fool or on Alpha Re or, or on anything, and um, I don't trust my financial advisor, so I'm looking for just not um, financial advice, but information on where to get good, honest, reliable financial advice. Thank you for all you do, and I look forward to hearing back on this. Thank you. Bye-bye now.
1: Well, recently I've heard from some financial advisors that are really pissed off at me for calling them financial liars and saying that most of them suck at their job, and generally, I have one question. What percentage of your client's assets were in cash and cash equivalents uh, and, or, and or moved there and held there between June of 2007 and June of 2008? And if the answer is anything less than 25%, dang, wrong answer, goodbye. Goodbye, go out. Um, or unless they can come back and say, well, we weren't there, but what we did was position for a down market, and we had them into hedge funds or something like that. Uh, or we moved into a precious metals-based portfolio, or, or some answer that says, hey, yeah, I saw the train coming, and I got my people out of the way of it. And, and I would tell you that that's the only thing you need to – see, that was such a telegraphed punch, okay? And if you get somebody that says, well, I haven't been in the business that long, and wrong answer, you're too new to be messing with my money, I'm an informed consumer, I'm sorry, I'm not using the – Peel and stick version of financial advice that your mother company just takes and pours all my shit into and sends back to you with a pie chart on it. So you haven't been around long enough to be managing my money if you've not been around that long. And then if it's, well, uh, 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 well, no, bam, wrong answer because you should have had an answer to that. And again, it's because the train wreck of 2008-2009 was something that anybody that didn't see it has no business advising anybody what to do with their money. So you financial advisors out there that want to challenge me, that's the first question I have for you. If you can't answer that, you can put together five pages of crap like the latest guy that emailed me, and I won't read it because I don't have time. I don't have time to read that much information. You want to challenge me, then you show me where you did that. You show me where you protected people in a financial crisis that even a dumbass redneck like me was going, get out, get out, get out, get out. Where do you find good advice? Okay, the sources you're mentioning like Seeking Alpha and Motley Fool and, and uh you know, all of these sources are actually the information's not the problem. It's the conclusions. The, 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 this is what people don't get, okay? so. When you go and you read Motley Fool and they talk about an earnings report from a specific company and they talk about the projected future of that sector, um, that's, that's usually pretty factual information. Unless the company itself light on its earnings report, which... Doesn't happen as much as you might think because it's pretty serious when they get caught in it. It's, it, it's not that it never happens. We've seen it happen. There's been book cooking and Ron, you know, I mean, it, it's happened, but it's, it, it, most financial statements put out are fairly accurate. Sector analysis is usually fairly accurate. Projected growth in a sector as long as another sector doesn't head it off. Like we project housing to grow, but if, if the debt you know, can't be acquired due to tightening of lending, then it doesn't matter that people want houses, right? So you have to look at the totality. So the reality is most of the decisions, if you really want them to be in your best interest, have to be made by you. And that most places that give information are giving accurate information, It's the advice that you can't trust. And I'm going to tell you that no matter how good somebody is, you can't go to a website, you can't go to a a news channel, you can't go to a TV station and get advice and apply it directly without some level of interpretation. That person isn't you. They don't know you. They don't know how much money you have. They don't know how much money you need to live on. They don't know how much you can afford to lose. They don't know any of these things. Enters the financial advisor who's supposed to take this information and the, and the, the, the information from the market and put the two together and come up with a portfolio that's specific to you. I haven't seen many of them that are very good at it, at it, unless they're managing people with networks worth over two million dollars. And, and that's just a harsh reality. And at that break point, things change with what you're able to do in our system. And And the people that know how to work that system want to be at that level. And generally, they're very, very good at what they do. And they don't have to look for business or advertise for business because millionaires know other millionaires. And they're highly recommended. And all I can tell you is that I have never received the insight or advice from any consumer level financial advisor that I've received by proxy through my partner Neil's financial advisor who advise, advises people with net worths in excess of ten million dollars and the advice out of there and the the, 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 the concepts from that individual are so beyond anything that anybody that works for Ameriprise or uh, you know American Express or Edward Jones could ever bring to you. It, 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 it's. But the problem is it's not accessible. It's not accessible to you and I. And a lot of the advice was really great advice. And I went, yeah, if I had a couple million bucks, I could do that. But I can't. And I really can't completely replicate it on another level. So if you can find a good financial advisor, then they're worth more than their weight in gold. But if you ask the question, how did you protect your clients before the train wreck of 2008, 2009, and they do not have a satisfactory answer, you should be done. Unless they make a very compelling case to you that would start with, boy, did we get our ass kicked by that. And I believed... All of the material that my company and my training had taught me, and the mainstream was telling me, and I, I held tight, dollar cost averaging, risk assessment, telling my younger clients not to even worry because they were 40 years out from retirement, and not to, wor- and, and I, I, you know, and man, what a wake up call, and I've completely changed my philosophy of investing, and I take a totally different approach now, and let me tell you about it. That guy I'm interested in talking to, the guy that says, you know what? When that was coming, we went into 25% cash-cash equivalents. We went into uh, a 20% uh, gold holding, a 10% silver holding. Uh, we went into a little bit of hedge funds, and we held on to some of our dividend producers that we thought would ride it out. Really? Great. Come over to my house. Let's talk. Right? I mean, seriously, that's, that's the answer. But, and, and you know what I'm going to say? redact client information and name, show me the portfolios and show me them changing. Show me a portfolio that was heavy in equities that you did that with and 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 what you did on the other side of it and where you're at today. You and I can talk and form a lifelong relationship and I would have you as my advisor tomorrow. And if you're that person and licensed in the state of Texas and in the North Texas area, get in touch with me because the guy I have now pretty much is a pawn that I tell him what to do when he does it. He gives me some good advice once in a while, but I have to take the advice, digest it, and come back and say, Jake, go do X, Y, and Z now. But but no more buts. Go do it. Okay? So let me give you some financial advice, though. This is a good time to be in equities. They're, they're going up, and they're going to keep going up, and they're going to have some downturns in the middle, but we are on a boom cycle now. We've been through the shredder. The other side of this boom cycle is another bust. And you got to be ready to pull out before it happens. But I think we're quite a ways off with one problem. I said that it's bad that the presidents in deep shit right now. That is not good for the markets. That that could have a real dampening effect, a real moisturizing effect on the fire lit in the markets right now. Um you have to make these decisions for yourself, though. There's no easy answer to where do I get good, solid financial advice. Because in the end, it's your money, it's your wealth, and it's your responsibility. And I, it amazes me, I, you know, I'll know somebody that has a car, right? And that car's a depreciating asset no matter what you do with it. They wax that car every two weeks. They write down the mileage and monitor the mileage, and if it drops by a couple miles, they want to tune up, and they want to know what's going on with it. They crawl underneath it and look at it. Man, they just... You know, and I or there's and if it's not a car, there's something in their life that doesn't really increase in value, doesn't have lasting value, and doesn't do much other than occupy space and maybe perform a function that they're that way with, and they know everything about it. And you ask them when it was made, they'll tell you. And they ask, you don't, some of the people with the car, they'll tell you it was made on a Thursday. I made sure my car was made on a Thursday, or I made sure my car was made on a Wednesday. I didn't want it on a Monday car or a Friday car. Right? And this car is the fifth generation of, or and it could be anything, not just a car. And then but they want somebody to to take care of their money for them and just tell them what to do. What's more important to you? And I know that it's hard when you're like, I don't understand all of this stuff. And the reality is most of the investments that people have a hard time understanding, they probably shouldn't be screwing around with anyway. I don't understand options trading. Great, don't trade options. Or find somebody that's willing to help you use options to insure your investments. And if you could find somebody that can do that and explain to you how they've done it in the past and how they would do it right now, then you probably found somebody that's at a caliber that you're lucky to be talking to them. I really mean that. And when they start saying crap like, I don't do in trading, I deal in investing. Bullshit. Okay? If you don't deal in trading... If all you're going to tell me is buy X, Y, and Z mutual funds and hold on and wait and dollar cost average, I don't need you for that. I can go to any website out there and go through an investment wizard and get the same portfolio. And even the cute little pie chart you'll bring me with your recommendation presentation. You know, I really don't need you for that. If you can't tell me, I'm going to tell you to exit the market in these sectors, when, so when somebody brings me a recommendation, I, I think you should go into this fund. Great. What indicators are that we should exit this fund? And there should be more. See, this is more how to interview a financial advisor. And if it's, I just think it's a long term investment. You don't need to worry about it. Eh, wrong answer. I don't even want to talk to you anymore because there's certain answers that should be. Well, we've determined that you need a good solid 10% return on your investment. Uh, on an annualized basis to meet your retirement goals. So if this investment increases by 40% in value in a single year, we're good with that money for four years. And that would be a time to simply take that profit and then think really hard about being a little bit more conservative with that part of your investment portfolio for that period of time. Because now we can afford to be a little bit more conservative. And while we're doing that, we can look for the opportunity to have another big gain. That would be one. Another would be, this is heavily into the sectors of X, Y, and Z. If we see anything that begins to threaten those sectors, knowing that this fund is invested into that type of an investment, and knowing that the manager of that fund cannot move out of that type of an investment, we need to move out of the fund. Right? These are answers I would accept. Well, if we ever get into a situation where we think the entire economy is going to go off the rails, we need to take everything conservative, including this one. These are answers that I would accept from a financial advisor. It's just like a doctor saying, I think you need to go on medication X, Y, and Z. Right. When will I be coming off of those? And if the answer is never, we need to talk about it a lot more before we put that into our body. Okay? Okay. And if it's you'll be coming off in three weeks because this is what we're going to do, then maybe we can talk about it. And if it's you're going to be on it for the rest of your life, because if you don't, you're going to die, then maybe we can talk about it. But if it's just like you have acid reflux, but once you start taking this purple pill, you're going to be on it for the rest of your life, eh, wrong answer. you got to take the same approach with your financial advisors. And you're probably going to have to talk to 20 or 30 of them to find one or two like this. You really are. And I know I'm pissing a bunch of you guys off right now. I'm sorry. Listen, I'm not trained the way that you are. I don't have the investing background that you do. I am, honest to God, the son of a redneck coal miner from Pennsylvania that's found a home in Texas. That's what I am. That's biggest interest is in permaculture, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and preparedness. And I know these things. If you don't, you shouldn't be advising people what to do with their freaking money. But as far as the information that's available in most of the press, read this is the advice to the caller and everybody else when you're making decisions. Read around the advice into the facts. What are the facts, not the conclusions? Make a list of all the facts that you can collect about the economy, about a sector of the economy, about a type of investment, just the facts, ma'am. Okay, like was it what Agent Friday used to say? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts, right? Just the facts, not the opinion and the conjecture. And you'll start to form a picture of what's going on. It's how I have a fairly successful track record of telling you what's coming. I'm telling you that we're in for an economic boom based on energy because the facts are we're pumping more gas and oil than any time in history. While we're coming off of coal in many areas due to restrictions, it's incentivizing the production of cheap gas. The Panama Canal is being enlarged so they can put gas from the United States over to China and back. And and, and China's investing heavily both for the gas to come to them and because they know that will actually spur the U.S. economy for imports from China again. And that will let them put these big giant ships they are slower with a lot more merchandise through that canal, so they're willing to put skin in the game. Right? So with all those facts, my conclusion is the energy is going to get very cheap and very abundant very, very soon, and it's already on the path to that, and there's almost nothing to run it off the rails at this point. And when a company is producing abundant or a country is producing abundant cheap energy, economic booms follow. I also look at the fact that we've leaned out our companies. We're increasing profits. And I look at the fact that everything that I thought was going to happen, by and large, occurred the way that I said it was, which was dividend-producing stocks becoming in vogue, which was companies reporting all-time record profits even before the recession was over because they'd leaned out. So since all those things add up, I trust my conclusion. But if you don't trust my conclusion, don't follow it. But Dad Gone, when you guys interview your financial advisors, talk about 2008. If they don't have a good answer for that, don't hire them. And ask them when, they, when you say, if you made a recommendation for an investment to me, what are the criteria that you would use for when it's time to exit that? And if they can't answer those two sufficiently, the way I just did, and, wrong answer, move on next. Just my thoughts. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget
4: we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can
7: do.